0: Awesome. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you all for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we are glad that you join us for worship, and we'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here, and and uh, be a part of what God's up to in the life of the church here. And so we're excited about that. Excited as well. to continue working our way through the Book of Philippians together? We're kind of three or four weeks in now to our study. But if you're just joining us for the first time, or maybe you're new, let me catch you up briefly on on. Where where we're at, and and uh, we'll go from there. So Philippians, as we've been talking about, it's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to a, a church that he planted about 10 years prior to the writing of this letter. And it's a letter that's full of encouragement. It's it's full of encouragement because the reality is that since, since the beginning that this church has been characterized over the, over their 10 years as a church, they've been characterized by a love for God and a desire to know Him and, and for others to know Him as well. Uh, they've been characterized by a sacrifice generosity with their finances and and with faithfulness to the gospel and faithfulness to the Word of God and and honestly they just have a genuine gratitude and appreciation for Paul as a guy who planted their church and helped lead and invest in them and in fact the reason that Paul's writing this letter to them now is because they sent somebody to check on him they heard that he was in prison in Rome and so they sent one of their leaders to go check on him to see how he was doing and to see if he needed anything and to be able to provide for any needs that he might have had and so when Paul thinks about this this church, he is full of encouragement and joy and thankfulness to God for them. But What happens is as you you read the letter, what you find is that even in the midst of all the reasons that Paul has to be thankful for and encouraged by all that God's doing in in these people, what you see is that throughout the letter is that he longs that they would continue to keep growing up in their faith. He wants the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus to ongoingly to keep shaping them, to keep transforming them, to keep renewing their attitudes and their actions and their perspectives, The, the perspective you have throughout the letter is that they have. Haven't arrived yet, that neither is Paul, that neither have we. And, and so instead of patting him on the back and just giving him an attaboy, Paul urges them and urges us as well to keep pressing in to the often uncomfortable process of growing up in our faith and continuing to mature as individuals and as community, knowing that God's not actually done with us yet. He's not actually done transforming us yet. And so we wrapped up chapter one last week. We saw the the growth that Paul's urging us towards was was as God's people was to be characterized by living in such a way that that shows the surpassing value and worth of belonging to Jesus and shows how good the good news is that he has made us uh, citizens of his kingdom and to live with that kind of a mindset. And the, the thing that we saw connected all of the, the ways that Paul encouraged us to do that, the, what it looked like to live that out, the thing that connected all of that stuff was unity. We saw that we were to stand firm in the one spirit, that we're to strive together for growth and, and together to resist fear and In other words, what Paul is saying is that the unity of God's people is a central aspect of lives that demonstrate the surpassing worth of the gospel. That the unity of God's people is central to lives that demonstrate the surpassing worth of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus. But the reality is that Paul's not naive. See, he understands that unity is actually really hard. It's not something that comes by accident. He's writing this letter from prison in Rome, uh, very aware of the midst of the reality that the church in Rome is struggling greatly with division in the midst of the body there. And, as well, he's writing to a church here in Philippi that's working through some divisions themselves. We see in chapter 4 that he specifically addresses this situation where there's, where there's disunity between two women in this body, believers, that's impacting the community as a whole, and he urges them uh, eagerly that they would reconcile with one another. All of that just goes to show how even in the healthiest of churches, unity is not a given. Unity is not a given, and that's because, as we're going to see this morning, is that the mindset that leads to unity is actually completely at odds with some of our most basic instincts and desires. The kind of mindset that leads to unity is at odds with some of our most basic instincts and desires. And so what Paul does in our passage this morning is he is not just calling us to be unified, instead what we're going to see is that he shows us how to do it. He doesn't just call us to unity. He shows us how to be unified. And what we're going to see is that that true unity is only possible when we approach one another with the kind of radical humility that God himself modeled for us in Jesus. That true humility and that true unity is actually only possible when we first see, when we approach one another with the kind of radical humility that God modeled for us in Christ. In other words, here's what we're going to see this morning is that the key to unity is humility and the key to humility is the gospel. That's where we're headed this morning. and so with that in mind, uh, let me let's pray and then we'll dive into our passage together. God thanks so much for your word and our time together in it this morning. And God, I'm I'm so grateful for our church and the church that you've gathered here together this morning. I'm so grateful that our conversation about unity this morning doesn't need to be like an intervention conversation, because by your grace, I feel like you've really been giving us that kind of a gospel-centered unity. And so I pray this morning that you, uh, even in the ways that you have been granting us that, and the ways that you've been growing us in that, God, I pray that you would help us to keep growing up as as a church that is unified around you and that the person the work of jesus this morning would be good news for our hearts that not only shows us this incredible example of a unity producing humility but that it would be the power we need to keep pressing into that as a church god we want to be characterized by unity because we know that it's part of it's central to lives that show the surpassing value and worth of the gospel And so we ask that you'd keep characterizing us that way for for our good and for your glory. And so for any of that to happen, we need you to work in us this morning. And so we give ourselves to you and we want to submit ourselves to you and your word. We pray these things in your name, God. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 11. It begins this way. Therefore... Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, so much good stuff in our passage this morning. The passage begins basically with, with Paul telling this church, saying to them, basically he says, if the gospel's good news to you, if, if you've been united with Christ and brought into fellowship with him, if you've experienced his tender and compassionate love for you, he says, verse 2, then make my joy complete. than than by being like-minded and having the same love and being one in spirit. In other words, he's saying, I want you to respond to the gospel and all that Jesus has done for you, I want you to respond to the gospel by being committed to and by pursuing unity with the people of God. I want that to be your response to that. So the reality is that unity is a hallmark of the gospel. John 17 with Jesus, the cross right before him, he prays specifically for the unity of God's people that we would be one as he and the father are one so that the world would know that he was that he that the father had sent him here paul uses phrases like being like-minded and one in spirit to describe the kind of unity he's asked he's after it's a those things are about having the same kind of focus and priority and goals it's about being on the same page about what really matters and and what's driving everything we do and those ideas are are not about agreeing on every single detail and nuance of life. But it's, about having, the, it's like about having the big E on the I chart be the same thing, the same goals, the same priorities, the same things that are driving you. You see, what Paul's not calling this church to is uniformity. See, uniformity is when everyone thinks and believes and acts and votes in the exact same way. And that's not what Paul is after here. You see, unity is different. Unity is about a oneness that comes in the midst of differences. Unity is about oneness that comes in the midst of differences. Did you notice how he said that he wants them to have the same love, not love the same thing? You see, even though we are united by a common faith in Jesus, which is we are still as a church made up of all kinds of different people. We have maybe different theological or philosophical or political uh, differences. We might have differing opinions or convictions about parenting or education or health care or a million other kinds of things. And one of the ways that we show the surpassing worth of the gospel is by choosing to sacrificially love and serve one another in the midst of our differences. You see, that kind of a unity is so wildly countercultural because in the world around us, the way you get unity is either by excluding or demonizing anyone who thinks differently than you at all, or by simply requiring that everyone ignore every difference that we have between each other. That's the only two ways to get unity in the world around us. And yet in response to the gospel, we're called to be a people who not only acknowledge our differences, but who choose to sacrificially love and serve one another in the midst of those differences, in the midst of the things, in the areas where we're not the same. And so the question that you have to ask is, how do you do that? Because that's not the default mode of any of us, right? That's not, that's not the way we act by default. And what Paul says is that the key to that kind of unity, the key to that kind of unity is humility. Verses three and four, he says, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's so important what you see what Paul's talking about here. You see, Paul doesn't define humility as thinking less of yourself. Paul defines humility as thinking of yourself less. That's a really key difference, you see. It looks like choosing to put the interests and the good of others before your own. You see, humility doesn't require that you never think about yourself. That's not what Paul is after here. But it does require a reordering of when that happens. You see, for followers of Jesus, humility is characterized by thinking of God's first, of others' second, and ourselves' last. That's how the gospel transforms the way that we think and the way that we view our own good and the good of others and the glory of God, where we choose to prioritize the glory of God and the good of others ahead of our own. And again, that that doesn't mean as a Christian that you don't have opinions or convictions or that you don't care about what anyone else thinks or believes. But what we see in Romans 14 and 15 is that Paul says that that believers, they should be fully convinced in their minds about what they think best honors Jesus. But he says that instead of shouting all your opinions from the rooftop, instead of making every effort to convince everyone that you're right, He tells them, whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. He goes on to say, make every effort instead to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. You see, we live in a world that is constantly beckoning us to shout our opinions about anything and everything from the rooftops. Often, usually that looks like from sitting behind a screen and to demonize anybody who holds any kind of opposing position to us. But the reality is, as God's people, that should be a way in which we are markedly different than the world around us. You see, it is clear that the issues that were dividing the church in Rome and in Philippi, they weren't first order issues. They weren't differences regarding the clear and central aspects of, the, of what it means to be a Christian, that that Jesus is God, that the Bible is true, that we are sinners. It wasn't about that kind of stuff. They were about secondary theological issues or differences of philosophy of ministry or matters of wisdom like how to relate to the government, or raise your kids, or what it might be. And the same things are are the kind of true, the same things are true of the way that oftentimes churches today are divided what you see throughout the scriptures is that over and over christians are called to be unyielding on those first order things but on everything else that we are to be careful to not allow the church to be divided and that doesn't mean there isn't room for different churches that hold different emphases or positions but it does mean that we need to be really careful about what we allow to separate us See, and the only way that you can be characterized with an others-focused humility, the only way that you do that is when you're characterized with this others-focused humility. And so the passage is clear that, that, that Christian unity is central to a life that's worthy of the gospel and that humility and a focus on the good of others is, is central to that kind of a unity. But Paul doesn't stop there because what he, what he knows is that there's only one way there's actually only one way you become characterized by by the kind of self-sacrificing humility that prioritizes the good of others ahead of your own. Verse 5 he says it this way, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus did. Have the same mindset as Jesus. Paul says the only way you get the kind of unity producing humility that he's calling us to is when you see first how Jesus demonstrated that humility towards you. The only way you get it is by seeing that Jesus demonstrated that humility towards you. What Paul proceeds to lay out for us in in the coming verses, in verses six through 11, is, I'll just say, one of the most profound and rich and beautiful and transformative passages in all of the Bible. It's often referred to as the Christ hymn, and it's one I have studied countless times, and yet in my prep this week, continued to find myself just blown away by. You see, in it, Paul shows us the almost unfathomable mindset that drove Jesus to choose to do all that he did so that we might be united with him and with one another. Let me just read this for you again. And I just urge you, ask God to help this reality sink into your hearts. It's just incredible. He reads this way. Paul writes to them, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He says, this is what that mindset was. This is what it looked like. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You have to see what Paul is doing there. You see, Paul is saying that Jesus was God himself. He wasn't God-like, he wasn't God-adjacent, he wasn't God-ish, Jesus was in very nature equal with God and yet he did not consider his identity and status as God something to be used for his own advantage. Other translations say something to be grasped or something to be held onto. Let that sink in for a moment. The God of the universe the one who Colossians tells us not only created everything we see but who in fact holds it together by the power of his word did not think that his identity and status as God was something to be used for his advantage. That should blow your mind. That that is so otherworldly craziness to us. But it doesn't stop there. He he doesn't just use, he doesn't not only not use his status and glory for himself, what you see is that he lets go of it. He lets go of it for us, and not just partially, completely. He becomes a human, not a prestigious and powerful and important one, not a king worthy of honor and respect. He becomes a servant, the lowest of of classes. He becomes an obedient servant, even unto death, death on a cross, which was the most horrific and most gruesome and most humiliating death that a human could ever have endured. See, you and I could not have been higher, and we cannot go lower. For you engineers in here, the delta on that change is infinite. There is no greater contrast. What you see is that he does all of that, not begrudgingly, not under coercion, but willingly. Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Verse 8, he humbled himself he chose it. He could have chose to stop at any point or never started, but he didn't. One pastor poignantly writes it this way. He says, when the Romans arrested Jesus, they grabbed him with hands that not only he created, but with muscles that he empowered. They stretched their hands back to slap his face. They used the glands that he designed to work up the saliva to spit on him, and they nail him with metal that he created to a tree that he spoke into existence, and yet he is able to stop it at any moment. Verse uh, Matthew 26, Jesus tells Peter he says nobody is taking my life from me he says I lay it down of my own accord I willingly do it you see what Paul is pointing out for us here in Philippians 2 is that the God of the universe made himself nothing for you that he chose to be humiliated and killed by his own creation for you for your good do you see how that is the exact opposite of the way you and I live? See, we are, we are usually only willing to humble ourselves to the point of inconvenience, and that's about it. You see, but there are no lengths to which God would not go to rescue us from sin and to unite us with him. Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant. You and I, we are always trying to make ourselves something we're trying to raise our status and elevate our prestige. And Jesus is going down the ladder while we're always trying to go up. We see that he was equal with God and yet he let go of that equality with God. He, he did not consider something to be held on to and used for himself. Although, but there is that although you and I are not equal with God, we consider equality with God something to be run after and held on to and used to our own advantage. We think we are. You see, and that actually leads us to the last thing I want to show you this morning. You see, Paul's telling us that the key to unity is humility, and the key to humility is the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus. He's saying that you cannot get the kind of unity-producing humility we're called to apart from Jesus. And you have to ask the question, why? Why is that impossible apart from Jesus? Why is the gospel the key to humility? Why can't we just do the humility thing but do it without Jesus? Why do we need him? The reality is is that the gospel is the one thing that can overcome what verse 3 calls selfish ambition and vain conceit. You see, the humility we're called to isn't just to consider others as more valuable than ourselves and prioritize their interests and their good above our own, as difficult as that already is. What Paul says is that we need to do that with the right motivations. It's not even just about the difficulty of the external part. So we have to do it with the right motivations. I remember when we first had Emma, that was incredible and terrible at the same time. Uh, because as much as I love that little girl, the reality is what in a lot of ways it felt like she was ruining my life. And if you're a parent, then you all know exactly what I'm talking about, Right? You see, every parent understands that you love your kids, but loving them, it means the death of a whole lot of your own dreams and your own ambitions and your own priorities. And it means the death of the whole lot of the way that you spend your own time, the way that you use things for your own investment and your own good. And what I found is that what was happening in my heart is that I was just getting bitter, I was getting bitter, I was choosing to put her needs above my own, but it was just making me bitter and grumpy because even though on the outside what my actions might have looked like was humility and a focus on others, on the inside the thing that still mattered to me most was me. The thing that still mattered to me most was my own good and my own comfort and my own freedom to do what I wanted to do. You see, that is the reality is that that's true of the reality. Of the, without the gospel, that's just true of all of us. You see, unity producing humility is marked by focusing on and prioritizing the glory of God and the good of others, but selfish ambition and vain conceit, those are the exact opposite of that. It's the the polar end, it's the other end of the spectrum, and those things are the default mode of all of our hearts for every one of us. That is what is at the core of us. See, selfish ambition, some translations put it as a spirit of rivalry. It's all about this desire we have for our own good to be first, to see ourselves as the most important and most significant, to make everything be about us, no matter what that means for others. And the reason we have that kind of a selfish attitude, Paul says, because we have vain conceit. Literally, that means empty pride. The the Greek word that's translated as as that that phrase, vain conceit, it's It's a really hard word to translate, but literally what it means is glory hunger. It means glory hunger. You see, it's talking about a person who is starving for glory, as someone who is starving to be seen as important, as valuable, as significant. Tim Keller sums it up this way. He says that the thing that we all want most and are therefore most afraid of not having is our own glory. He says, the thing we are most afraid of is that we have no glory, that we're insignificant, overlooked, that we don't matter, that we're unimportant or marginal, peripheral, ephemeral. And so what we do is we convince ourselves that we really do matter. In fact, that we matter the most and we have to convince ourselves that we're somebody and any situation that reminds us of this deep fear, it sets us off. See, the reality is that without the gospel, all of us are starving for we are starving for it. And in the best case, we look externally like we're focused on others, but internally we are still motivated by selfish ambition and a starvation for glory. We're trying to make up for our sins somehow. or trying to gain the approval of God or people, or ironically, we want to be seen by others as humble by being humble, which all of which fundamentally undermine what true humility is actually about. And what it actually does is it produces more division because what happens is when you think you have done enough that people should notice, that God should notice, that people's opinion of you should change based on the way that you act and it doesn't, what happens is you just get bitter. You just get bitter and angry because you think you deserve something better and all that leads to is more division and more disunity. It doesn't produce real unity. You see, without the gospel, we are all starving for glory. But what you have to see is that the gospel changes that. The person and the work of Jesus changes that. Because in the gospel, not only do we see Jesus setting aside his glory, we see that doing so is actually the way to get the thing you're really after. You see, on the cross, Jesus got the thing that you and I are most afraid of. He emptied himself of his glory. He chose to be rejected, to be despised, to be seen as insignificant and unimportant, to be pushed to the outside. And yet the passage goes on, verse 9, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that's the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What you see as you continue reading, if you look in Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, is, is that Jesus did that so that you and I might share in his glory. Paul writes, he called you to the gospel so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Philippians 2 is this reminder that the way up is down. That the way to, to true glory is to give it up. The way to significance is to admit that we are not significant apart from God. When we live live for ourselves and our own glory and in our own importance, we are always empty and we will always be divided. But when you see that God himself emptied himself of his own glory, that instead of holding on to it, he let it go for you, what happens is that frees you That frees you from selfish ambition and it frees you from the starvation we all have to be be glorious and to be seen as significant and important and influential because it's this proof that God himself has valued you more than anything. And it frees you from that because it empowers you to be characterized by the kind of unity producing humility that consistently puts the interests of others before your own, even when it's costly, even when it means letting go of the ways that you feel significant and important, even though it means the cost of your own ambitions because what you know is that God himself has done that very same thing for you and proven that that's the real way to You see, it's only when you see the radical humility of Jesus towards you, it's only when that sinks deeply into your heart, not, and that he chose to do that not when you loved him, not when you thought he was worth it, not when you thought he was beautiful, but when you were his enemy. Then what happens is you don't just have an example. What you have is the power to follow the example. And it's a power that's full of love because you long to give yourself back to the one who gave himself for you. You see, the key to unity is humility. The key to humility is the gospel because the gospel melts your heart and it transforms your mind so that you might have the same kind of mindset that led Jesus to humbly lay down his good for yours. That's the one thing that does it. And that's what we're remembering and celebrating when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves about the good news of the gospel, about Jesus' body broken for you, his blood shed for you on your behalf so that you might have in seeing his humility that it might be possible not only for you to be united to him, but to have a real transformative unity with the people. And to put the good of others in front of your own, motivated, not out of duty and obligation, but out of love. And communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. The Bible is clear that faith alone in Jesus is what does that. And so I wanna encourage you. If you're here this morning and you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to have him be the king that uh, you put your hope and trust and allegiance in, then I want to encourage you. You are so welcome here, but I also want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions and, and just kind of doing what you think you're supposed to do. He's after hearts that are motivated, captivated by him and who in return out of love give ourselves wholeheartedly back to him and so if you're here this morning and for the first time what you see is that that's how Jesus has related to you and you want to respond by giving your life back to him then do that and go and take communion and joy and do it full of celebration knowing that you're responding to all that God has done for you And if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's two tables in the back, one on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread and the juice and and take communion that way. And as we close, I just want to encourage you, all of you, talk with God. All of us on the base root level are motivated by selfish ambition and by a starvation for glory. And each of us, each and every day, we need the gospel to keep pulling up those roots and so that it might be replaced with the very humble, sacrificial love of Jesus for us so that we might be motivated to live as his people in that kind of a way. That's the one way we're changed. And so I want to encourage you, talk with God, ask him to help you see not just the external attitudes and actions of your life, but the internal motivations of your heart. You see, for me, I told you earlier about how when Emma was first born, I just wrestled with bitterness because it felt like she was kind of, in a lot of ways, robbing me of the life that I wanted to live. But here's the reality, church. God has changed that in me. And as I kept coming back to this passage, one that I needed to be good news to my heart, what God has done over time is cause the humility of Jesus, his sacrificial, joyful love for me to transform my own heart. And so that I get to choose to put the good of my family and the good of my kids and the good of you and the good of others before my own. And not resulting in bitterness and anger and just angstiness, but out of love to do it for you and to do it for others. The gospel is the one thing that can change that in you. It's the one thing. And so I implore you this morning, ask God that he might cause the gospel and the humility of Jesus to be good news to you, that melts your heart and that reforms it so you might be characterized by his mindset in your relationships with one another. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are so grateful that although you were the king and creator of the universe, the one who made it and sustains it, that you didn't count your identity and status as God himself, something to be held on to and used for yourself, but you used it for our own good, and you laid down your glory, and you laid down your rights and privileges for us And you valued us more than you valued yourself. And we ask, God, that you would cause that reality to utterly transform our community, Jesus. That you would cause us to be characterized out of a response to you. To value others above ourselves and to do that not in order to get something from you or from them, but to to do it out of a love for you, not out of selfish motives and out of a starvation for glory, but because we know that you died so that we might share in your glory with you. And so Jesus caused the good news of the gospel to change us from the inside out so that we might be a church that is characterized by an otherworldly kind of unity In the midst of our differences, that proclaims the surpassing worth of all you've done, we pray. Amen.